Our passage this morning will be Colossians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. We began the discussion of verse 8 last week. I'm going to continue it on. The Apostle Paul writing to a church you'd never seen. Verse 5 says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So, I said last week that carbon monoxide poisoning takes the lives of 500 people accidentally in America each year. It's deadly because it is odorless, it is tasteless, and it is colorless. And you're overcome with it before you know it. And I said last week that the worldviews around us, just like the worldviews at Colossae, are so encroaching and so prevalent that they can overtake us without us being really aware of what is happening. We are surrounded by worldviews that denigrate the biblical worldview and the person and work of Christ. Therefore, it is incumbent upon us to think well and to concentrate. And I saw this picture this week. This is the picture of a man mowing his yard in Canada a couple of weeks ago. Okay, it's not photoshopped, all right? Here's a guy mowing his yard with a huge tornado not far from him. Uh, his wife took the picture because she couldn't believe it. And as he mowed, he said, well, I was mowing until my wife gave me the signal that danger was approaching, and then I came inside. Well, I'm not sure his wife really loved him. Maybe she took out some insurance on him. But he did make it inside. But I, I thought, that's, that's the type of concentration that's called for to really think biblically. You've you got to think well, and you've got to think in a concerted fashion. So as we think about this issue of a biblical world and life view, when you come under the rubric of the name Christian in the Western world and in America, there, there are, are two extreme positions. I'll show you with this little diagram. Extreme position number one, you can see it in major denominations. They surrender to the worldview of those around them. There are major denominations that have said something like this. We, we believe that God is progressive. God is in process. It's called process theology. Just like we are progressive. And so God changes and grows with the times just as we do. So there's no fixed biblical truth. There's just traditions. And so these major denominations have said, you know, We've come to believe that the Apostle Paul was right about the cross, right about the forgiveness of sins, but really Paul was probably a misogynist, didn't like women, because Paul says in 1 Timothy that only men should be pastors. And then he says in Ephesians 5, for example, that, that husbands should be the servant leaders of the home. 
There's not this crass egalitarianism. Forget the fact that Paul also said that it was totally against his culture, that there are, there's total spiritual equality in Christ between male and female, slave and free, Greek and Jew, whatever. But they said Paul was probably a misogynist, but he was right about the forgiveness of sins. And then a little while later, they said, Paul, Paul was a misogynist, and also he was probably homophobic because he talked about how there's natural sexual orientations that's between a man and a woman in marriage. And outside of that, it's just not natural. It's not God's prescribed will. It's not God's plan for your life. So, so Paul was misogynistic and homophobic, but he's right about the forgiveness of sins. Well, it doesn't take anybody long to say, well, really, if you say there's only one way to be saved, and that's through the work of Christ, you're nothing more than a religious imperialist. So you just jettison the whole thing. And then you meet and you just have words that have no meaning. So we surrender. And there are denominations that have done that. On the other hand, there are people who say, we withdraw. We withdraw. The world is difficult. We're going to build a moat around our house with reinforced uh, electric fences, and we're going to guard our family and our welfare, and we're not going to be involved in our neighborhood or in our culture or, or anything else. We're just going to do our thing. Listen, that's not biblical. In fact, Paul is writing to this church of Colossae, pleading with them to impact their culture, pleading with them to think and live biblically so they can represent Christ and speak the word of Christ to those around them. And see, that's why I think verse 8 may be the linchpin for the rest of the book of Colossians. If you want to understand the book of Colossians, you've got to really deal with verse 8 of chapter 2. Because I think that's, that's the linchpin. After Paul talks about the supremacy of Christ and the wonder of the cross and the forgiveness of sins, he talks about walking in Christ and he says this. He says, don't let anybody take you captive or plunder you or kidnap you with philosophy and empty deceit or high-sounding nonsense that depends upon mere human tradition and elemental spirits or the spirit of the age and not depending upon Christ. So I think that's a linchpin of, of the rest of the book of Colossians. And so that's why we've got to think well and we've got to live well in community. And that's why as a church, you've heard this, but our purpose statement is this. Equipping people to pursue Jesus passionately to impact the culture. That could be the theme of the book of Colossians. Equipping people to think biblically, to live biblically, to pursue Jesus passionately to impact the culture. That's what we should be about. You think well and you live in community. Now, let me just take a brief side road. I love to study history and to see how a person who is a believer in Christ, who sits under the authority of the Bible, has his or her personality shaped and the contours, you know, put together because of biblical truth. Let me give you an example. There's a quote in the worship guide from a man named Jonathan Edwards. Just a real brief background, Jonathan Edwards. Edwards, Jonathan Edwards died in 1758. Jonathan Edwards was an incredibly brilliant, shy, retiring scholar. They said he spent 13 hours a day in the study. He was brilliant. Jonathan Edwards' background, one of 11 children, the only boy, 10 daughters or 10 sisters. All the sisters were six feet tall. 
Now think about that. That's when the average American, 1730, was four inches shorter than the average American today. So those girls would be like six, three or so today. And unfortunately, that was before volleyball was introduced in Connecticut. So they talked about Mr. Edwards, 60 feet of daughters. So these, these girls. So Jonathan Edwards, brilliant, goes to Yale at the age of 13, writes a unbelievable master's thesis on the work of a spider, um, feels called the ministry, goes to ministry, but he, he's, he's shy, withdrawn. He marries a woman named Sarah that he fell in love with when she was 14. He waited until she was 17 to get married. He was 23. They had a wonderful marriage. They had 11 kids. And Edwards was a pastor. So, so here's a bookish man who's shy and retiring, who on any personality test that they didn't have in those days would have graded out as an extreme introvert. And yet this is what he says, because the Bible shaped his life. He said, God has made us with such a nature that we cannot subsist without the help of one another. God has made us that we need one another in the body of Christ. We can't flourish and exist and go strong without brothers and sisters in our lives who speak to us and help us think and help us walk in the way of Christ. I think of, just real quickly, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer raised in a very privileged German home, came to America, received his advanced degree, fell in love with jazz music and the American scene, had ch chances of plenty to stay here, but decided to go back to Germany because he saw the horror of Nazism coming into his land. In 1933, when Hitler came to power, he gave a radio address as a very young pastor saying, you cannot listen to what this man is saying because it's filled with hate and prejudice and bile. He said, read Mein Kampf. He said, the church cannot be seduced by Herr Hitler. This is the shy man who wasn't pugilistic, but, 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 but because of the scripture, it pushed him forward to be a man of valor and courage, and he continued to speak, and he continued to labor until he was executed by the Nazis just months before the war was over in 1945. So I read these guys, and I look at this, and this is what I ask. I ask you, is the Bible and the authority of Scripture shaping the way you think? Is it challenging the contours of your innate personality? Because the Bible says in Hebrews 4, verse 12, that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword, and it pierces to the division of the soul and the spirit, and it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And I ask myself, is that happening in my life? So, so the Scripture, the Scripture challenges, shapes, conforms our worldview. Now, today I'm going to talk about two issues that are intertwined, our view of God and creation and our view of man. And there's a little diagram in your worship guide that presents the naturalist, the proto-gnostic, which is very popular in Colossae, and the Christian view. So bear with me, this is really important stuff, thinking well. First of all, who is God? The naturalist says the only thing that ever has been or will be is what we can see. There is no God. If there is a God, he or she or it is totally undefinable. And we believe they would say that everything around us is the impersonal plus time plus chance. It is blind chance. That's just it. 
that, that's who we are. So all of creation is here marvelously, but it's a mistake. Now, the proto-gnostic would say this. There is a God that's undefinable, and there are various degrees of God, and with each passing incarnation of God, it becomes less and less divine. So many beings down from this pure mind came down this scale, and then that fallen being produced the earth. Therefore, the earth is putrid. Human flesh is a mistake, is putrid. There's no innate glory or grandeur. It's all just a big cacophonic mistake. That's what they believe. You compare those with the Christian worldview. I mean, I want you you to get this. The Christian biblical world and life view says there is a triune God who is eternal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this God who is all-glorious and almighty and who is forever God created the heavens and the earth. And he said when the heavens and the earth were created, when male and female were created, he said, it is very good that the earth is a glorious gift, that the order of the earth is a glorious gift. And even in a world that's got sin in it, even in a world that's fallen from its original innocence, we have echoes of the very good all around us. Echoes of the very good. Real quickly, I've got so much to say here. There's a man named Whitaker Chambers who wrote a book called Witness. Whitaker Chambers was an outspoken secret communist trying to infiltrate the U.S. government in post-World War II. He'd been taught by the communists that naturalism. There's no God. There's no God. A man is God. So, so you call the shots. Whitaker Chambers bought that. He believed that. He was, he was trying to infiltrate the U.S. government. And Whitaker Chambers said he was sitting in Baltimore having breakfast with his two-year-old daughter. She was eating cereal. And he said, I looked at this little girl that I love so much, and my attention rested upon her left ear. And he said, this thought went through my mind. He said, it was wholly unwelcome, and I I, I tried to push it out. The thought was this, nothing that beautiful and intricate and glorious could be produced by the impersonal plus time plus chance. There has got to be a supreme being who is gloriously good and creative. And he said, that hit me. He said, at that moment, here's his comment, at that moment, my whole worldview collapsed. At that moment, my whole worldview collapsed. Read Witness. It's a great book. So, so, a beautiful ear of a baby, the miracle of birth, all these are mere echoes of that which is very, very good. Now, there's something called the New City Catechism that's just been released, and we're encouraging people to get it and read it and buy it. There's one question here. I believe that if we really dealt with it, church, would answer the vast majority of our existential questions. And it's question number four, and it goes like this. find it. No, that's not it. Here it is. My eyes are here. Okay. That's it. Question. How and why did God create us? Answer. God created us male and female in his own image, which means that we can express beauty and have relationship and we have language and we can be creative and there's relationship, it's just glorious. He made us in his own image to know him, love him, live with him and glorify 
Him. And it is right that we who were created by God should live to His glory. See, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God, to enjoy God, to, to, to honor Him, to obey Him, to have human flourishing. Question five. What else did God create? Answer, God created all things by His powerful Word, and all His creation was very good. Everything flourished under His loving rule. The echoes of the very good. I believe if we dealt with question, question four, it's going to answer the majority of our existential questions. Now, now this week we had Vacation Bible School, and I said it was glorious. Vacation Bible School every year has these songs, and these songs, you hear them three or four times, and they just get in your brain, and it's like it takes over. So you hear these songs, and you're going down the street, and you sing the songs, and you wake up in the morning, and you're singing the songs. They just, I don't know what it is, it's really, it's, it's really incredibly good, but it's kind of scary, too. So here's the theme song. It's called Galactic Starveyors. And this is the chorus. This is just good theology. Look at the sky. Look at the stars. Look how awesome and endless they are. We're praising the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the universe maker. We're galactic starveyors. And then here's one stanza. I want you to see this. Our God is so amazing. He created everything we see. What's more incredible and unbelievable is that he knows and loves you and me. We're in awe and wonder of this mystery that we are made by the maker of the galaxies. Well, we're made in his image. He knows me. He loves you and me. And therefore, we stand in awe and wonder at this eternal God who cannot fully be comprehended, but has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he has made man and women in his image. And we have purpose and dignity, and we're not a colossal mistake. We are made in the image of God. Conversely, the naturalist says we are in the process of evolving. We're part, just one part of the animal kingdom. There's nothing special about man. In fact, in 1989, there was an article or an interview in Vogue magazine with a woman, Dr. Ingrid Newkirk, who was one of the leaders, maybe the head of PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, 1989. And she said in this article, something that has been quoted many times, she says, really, in reality, a rat is a dog, excuse me, a rat is a pig is a dog is a boy. See, a rat is a pig is a dog is a boy. And she says, you know, there's, a, there's difference there, but it's just not really. We're all just part of the animal kingdom. And then this, this term came out that if you really believe that, that man is really important and man is the crowning work of God's creation, which is what we believe, of course, then that's called speciesism. Or it's called believing in human exceptionalism, which should not be. Uh, See, hear it again. A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. This is what we believe. This is the Baptist faith and message. Man is a special creation of God, made in his own image. 
He created them, male and female, as the crowning work of His creation. The gift of gender is thus part of the goodness of God's creation. I love this. Man is the crowning work made in His image. The Bible says, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Be benevolent over all creation, but we are the crowning work, and He made us male and female. Therefore, gender is part of the goodness of God's creation. The last sentence in this article goes like this. The sacredness of human personality is evident in that God created man in His own image and in that Christ died for man. Therefore, every person of every race possesses full dignity and is worthy of respect and Christian love. Every person of every race possesses full dignity and is worthy of respect and Christian love. See, this gives you a place to stand in the culture. It gives you a place to stand when you love and embrace and care for people and stand for the dignity of man and the worth of value of every man. It is the echo of the very good. Hear me. Every semblance of racism for the believer must be ground under the heel of your sanctified boot. And racism is all around this globe. The Koreans don't like the Japanese and vice versa. The Chinese don't like the Japanese and vice versa. We saw in the 1990s that, that, that the Serbs hate the Croatians. We, we know that, that the Egyptians and the Algerians don't always get along. We, I read recently where, where, the, where the Danes just don't like the Germans and never have. It goes on and on. So you look at, whenever you say that our group or our ethnicity is anywhere better than anybody else, you have, cre- you have committed gross sin against a holy God. As a child in Bible school, I learned this song. Jesus loves the little children. All the little children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they're all precious in His sight. You see, the Bible says in Ephesians 2 that Christ has destroyed the wall of division between the Jews and the nations. Christ has destroyed the wall of division between this ethnic group and this ethnic group. And and so we are people who are one in Christ. And any form of racism must be ground under the sanctified boot of the child of God. A few years ago, I had the privilege of speaking to a missionary group in Bangkok, Thailand, and in the aftermath of that, I was able to go to Cambodia with my family. Cambodia is a nation that uh, I'd I'd read several books about the Pol Pot uh, takeover of Cambodia in 1975 when I was a very young man. A man named Pol Pot came to power in Cambodia, a beautiful nation of 10 million people. Pol Pot wanted to establish an agrarian, utopian society where people would just work in the fields and be happy, and he did it by systematically murdering 1.7 million people. Murdered them. If they, the Khmer Rouge were walking down the street and they heard you speaking in French, they would pull you aside and shoot you. Uh, it, was, it was a bloodbath. And I remember going to Cambodia and going to a, a big 
cave and 80-foot drop, and they would take people in there and hit them in the back with a machete and let them fall and let their bodies just waste away. And I went to, to the bottom of the cave, and there were just, just piles of, of bones sitting there. And there's a book written called The Elimination by a young man who was 13 when the Khmer Rouge came to power. And he said the Khmer Rouge took his mom and dad because they were educated. They took him out and they went to a relocation camp and they were murdered. And he took his older brother who had a, a degree, took him out and he was murdered. He was left alone at the age of 13. And so he had a brother-in-law who was a doctor who tried to pass himself off, off as a peasant because if they knew that he was a doctor, they would kill him. And so he's in the field and, and someone falls stricken with, a, with a, a broken leg or something. And the, the brother, his brother-in-law quickly went to it and tried to straighten the leg out and fix it. And they realized that he was a trained physician. And so they took this man out and they shot him. Man, how stupid can you be? I went to a place in Phnom Penh called S21. It was, a, it was an elementary school, friends. Elementary school turned into a torture chamber and a concentration camp. And in this small elementary school, 14,000 people were killed, murdered. Or they were either sentenced and taken out to the killing field and shot in the head and thrown in mass graves, thus the killing fields. And there were pictures of 14,000 people all over the school. And there's a man standing there who had survived, and he was telling us his story in broken English. And then this book was released called The Eliminator. And let me just read one paragraph. He said, he was, by this time he was an adult, and he said that he wanted to interview the head of S21, a famous man called Dooch. The brand is named Dooch. He said, I want to interview Dooch in 2010 when he became the first Khmer Rouge leader to be tried and convicted by the United Nations Authorized War Crimes Tribunal. The author writes that he was not looking for objective truth in his conversation with the former leader, but he just wanted to know how he could possibly explain himself. And so Dooch did so. As Mr. Pond, the author, says, he spoke in cultivated Khmer, he quoted French poetry, always with a smile on his face. This is what Dooch said. He said his victims were really not real men and women. By the time they got to S21, he said, they were no longer humans, they were only animals, close quote. And I thought about one of the first propaganda films released by the Nazis that showed large rats, filthy rats, scurrying around the house and also showing people who were supposedly Jewish who were dirty and unkept and unclean, and they just showed that. And what the Nazis were saying is there's no difference between the rats and the Jews because you know what? A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a Jew. And I thought about the movie Wonder Woman. I haven't seen it. I heard it's a good movie. Wonder Woman has been banned in Lebanon by the existing government because the existing government is controlled by Hezbollah, who are clients of Iran, and Hezbollah hate Jews. And the star of Wonder Woman is a beautiful Jewish woman who, by the way, served in the Israeli army for two years and became a, a weapons detonation expert. And one reason she got the role is because she understands Weapons. Maybe she really is Wonder Woman. I don't know, but, but they have banned Wonder Woman in Lebanon. 
Real quick, I don't want to take too much time, but I, as, as I thought about that, I thought about three years ago, I was teaching at a seminary in Tunisia, and there were 60 people there from six different countries, bright young Arab people, taking notes. They had their laptops, very impressive. And I was teaching through an interpreter who was an Egyptian physician. And on this particular day, I was, I was teaching on the depravity of man. And I said, the depravity of man is forcefully seen in the 20th century. I said, for example, arguably the most advanced, literate, cultured civilization in the world, Germany, produced Nazism that systematically took the life of six million Jews. And this physician, Christian, stopped and looked at me and he says, Buster, we do not believe that happened. I was stunned. I said, what? We don't believe that. I said, Joseph Stalin killed millions of his countrymen. We believe that. Mao Zedong killed tens of millions. Translated that. And then I thought, these are Christian Arabs. But because of the culture of hate, they are Holocaust deniers. It blew my mind. And I thought about being in another part of the world where I was meeting with some pastors and they said to me, in our country, we have to occasionally stand up in church and say, men, let me remind you, it is improper for you to beat your wives. Then I step back and say, where are the holes in my thinking? Thank God for a country that loves historical facts and understands the Nazis kept great, kept great, great, great records, and there's no doubt about six million Jews being killed. That's just, there's no doubt. Any vestige of racism, elitism, must be ground under the sanctified boot of the child of God. So, let me walk with you through this. Let's play who am I. Let me give you some facts about somebody. Tell your neighbor when you know the answer, and I'll tell you the neighbor in a few minutes. Who am I? I was born on the West Coast. I had an early interest in computers when computers were just beginning, and I was able to get out of class on numerous occasions, all types of, for, to, to just work on and be a programmer in a computer in my school. At the age of 17, I worked with someone who would eventually become my partner to develop a, a computerized system that would count the traffic flow in the city of Seattle, which really gave a lot of money into the government coffers. 17. On the SAT, I made 590 out of 1600. Five, 1590, excuse me. I made 590. He made 1500. <laughs> he made 1500 out of uh, 1590 out of six, 1600. Went to college. Uh, couldn't find a major he liked, so he dropped out after two years, his college dropout. Did pretty good financially. He flew coach until 1997, refused to fly first class, and in 1997 he quit flying coach because he bought his own jet. I guess you can fly coach on your own jet. You say, this is coach, this is first class, I don't know. Married a Duke graduate when he was 38 and she was 29, they had three girls. 
His income, total worth today is, as of last year, was $88.5 billion. Richest man in the world. Who is it? Bill Gates. Bill, I think I have a picture here. Yeah. Bill and Melinda Gates. I, when I've read about Bill Gates, I really like him. He's a very fine. Uh, he, he, um, established the Bill and Melissa Gates Foundation from 2005-2016. The Bill and Melissa Gates Foundation gave over $13.5 billion to uh, literacy programs, to health. I mean, think of it. B as in billion. Uh, very generous. He was inter interviewed in Rolling Stone magazine a couple of years ago, and they asked him some questions. He said this, I've been very lucky and therefore, I owe it to try and reduce the inequity in the world, and that's a kind of religious belief. I mean, it's at least a moral belief. I'm asking, what do you think about God? He said this. this. This is pretty good. He's in the ballpark. He's not there yet. He said, the mystery and the beauty of the world is overwhelmingly amazing, and there's no scientific explanation of how it came about. To say that it was generated by random numbers that does not seem, you know, that seems kind of uncharitable. And he laughed. I think it makes sense to believe in God, but exactly what decision in your life you make differently because of it, I just don't know, close quote. And I thought, really cool. I mean, his wife is a practicing to a degree Roman Catholic, and they're raising their girls in that tradition. I think he's a really nice guy. So if Bill Gates were here today, and if you're here, Bill, I'm really glad you're here. But if, if Bill Gates were here today, we'd take up the offering three times. I'd preach for 10 minutes, take up the offering. I'd, or, or I would have, I mean, this text giving, I have one of our people working, they do such a good job in finance. Aaron Kuyper showed me how to do text giving, and I'm a Neanderthal when it comes to the computer, and I can do it. And I say, Aaron, come up here and show us how to do text giving. And you can give if you're a church member or not, or a first-time guest. Just punch it in, and we'll take it. If Bill Gates were here today, I would say, can I take you to lunch? And I'd take him, I can't take him to Chick-fil-A, it's closed, I'd take him to Moe's. Because you're always welcome at Moe's. <laughs> and I would say to him, can I ask you a question? I'd say, why, why have you given so much money to different people groups? And his response would be, based upon the Rolling Stone response, because I just feel compelled to address inequity and poverty. That's great. But why? Where's the oughtness? Well, it, it makes me feel good. I said, that's good, but why? And he'd say, I said, let me tell you, why we do a few things we do in our church. I'll say, for example, I'll give him four examples. I'll give him a lot. We have in this church a prison correspondence ministry. There are 15 to 18 people who every week or every other week will write a, a prisoner, male or female, a letter with a Bible lesson in it that they have to fill out and they mail back and we pay for the postage 
and they, they write little essays, and it's a one-and-a-half to two-and-a-half-year program. And at the end of that, if they've done all their Bible lessons and done all their essays, and they get a certificate and a study Bible. That's it. There are 800 prisoners who are involved in this Bible literacy program all over this country. 800 out of this group of 15 people. Now, why do we do that? Answer. These men and women, many of whom have done horrific deeds to their fellow man, these men and women are made in the image of God, and they are worthy of respect and Christian love. And the only way for them to be made right with a God who is and not faced eternity of judgment is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who died on the cross for their sin. And we want them to be in heaven. They're made in the image of God, so we respect them. There's a ministry here that's dear to my heart called the Friends Ministry. It's a Sunday school class where we have special needs children. We have two adults, sometimes just one, but two adults per child to help out with these children who are dear to the heart of the living God. And while the culture may look at them and say, you know, quality of life would marginalize them, we say, no, these are children who are made in the image of God, and they are worthy of respect and Christian love. So we want to love them, and we want to give their parents a respite so they can come to worship. And, and we, we, we're going to have occasionally a date night on Friday night with the mom and the dad. Who, m mom's dad of special needs children do it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I admire them. It gives them a chance to go out and be with each other for two or three hours. We have the, 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 the foster adoption ministry in this church where we look at these children who come from very difficult homes and say we want to foster them or adopt them. And what we have right now in the system in this church Somewhere in the neighborhood of, of over 150 kids who, who, who are being processed here. Why? Because these children are made in the image of God. And they're worthy of respect and Christian love. Did you see that? It gives you, it's not because it makes us feel good. It does. It's not because it's, you know, it's because my worldview says people count. We have something in the area called the Low Country Pregnancy Center. It used to be called the Low Country Crisis Pregnancy Center because women go there in crisis. The vast majority are unmarried, and they're trying to decide whether or not to have the baby or have an abortion. And we plead with them to have the baby, and we work with them in getting them started or getting them into the adoption process. And we've been involved in this ministry since it started in Charleston 25 years ago. And listen, out of our budget and the people in the church, we've given that center millions of dollars. Why? Because life begins at conception. And, 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 and little babies in the womb are worthy of respect and Christian love and protection. And a culture that doesn't protect those who cannot protect themselves is under the judgment of God. So, to lighten it up a little bit, we had a grandbaby daughter born this week. In Washington State, her sweet daughter-in-law checked in. Four minutes later, a baby. I mean, really. We got there, and there was a nurse midwife on call. 
a graduate of Clemson University. How sweet is that? Anyway, so real quickly, my time is, my time is gone. I got, I'm going go, to run through this. So, so you see mankind, brothers and sisters, made in the image of God. Therefore, listen, therefore gender is part of the goodness of God's creation. So, so when we have a physiological girl born or boy born is our prayer that under the Lordship of Christ, this little girl would grow to be a, a, a Christ-centered woman to the glory of God, and this little boy will grow to be a Christ-centered man to the glory of God. I've got to be honest with you. I try to read and stay abreast and stay, because I'm part of this culture. And so when the old beggar fell situation happened that sanctioned same-sex marriage, I think it's three years ago this summer, yeah. Um, I, I wasn't surprised. I had, had some friends who worked inside the quarters of Congress. Russell Moore had told me, for example, he said, we're afraid this is going to pass, and it may pass 7 to 2. It didn't pass 7 to 2, but it passed. But I, I've got to tell you, a little over a year ago when I started reading about this bathroom bill in North Carolina and the furor over a, a, a piece of legislation that said, we would ask you to use the bathroom of your physiological distinction. I went, I really thought it was a far side article playing in the newspaper. I mean, who, who could be upset with this? And then the NCAA, that paragon of political virtue, got involved, which was a joke, and took out the ACC championship and took out the NCAA games. I thought, oh my gosh. And I, I remember reading that and hearing the protest and thinking, I'm not in Kansas anymore. This defies common sense. But, but hear me. If I believe that everything is impersonal plus time plus chance, and that sexual expression and sexual identity is part of my worldview, then you're going to say, well, I'll do this. I mean, we, we have this, this past week in Connecticut, a young man went to the track meet and said, I, I'm a guy, but I really feel like a female today. True story. He won the state 100 and 200 meters dash running against women. They said, well, we, 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 we can't deny that. That's where, it's, it's just silliness. It's silly. but, but if that is your worldview, it gives you no place to stand. We say, God is gloriously good and God makes us male and female. We rejoice in that. We're glad in that. Because gender is part of the goodness of God's creation. When I affirm my gender and when I affirm the joy of being masculine or feminine, I hear the echoes of the very good reverberating through my spirit. I pray for these dear people. I mean, a faulty worldview leads you into a lack of human flourishing. So, so as I close, the hinge... Listen, the hinge of understanding all of this is to stand at the foot of a bloody cross on Good Friday. And you say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. He is the fulfillment of all the promises. Behold, the Lamb of God who spoke with authority and invested his apostles with authority. And then three days later, you stand at the empty tomb in the amazement and consternation of the disciples and the women and say, he is risen from the dead. If you get the cross and the resurrection right, it all holds together. Because it points to the authority of the Bible. It points to the reliability of the scripture. 
It points to apostolic authority, that the unchanging God has spoken and He is. So, so here's, here's my plea. Preach the gospel of grace and see how it all holds together. And may we think well, church, and may we think in community. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day and for the mercy of Christ in our lives. Thank you that you are eternally good, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you have made mankind in your image. And thank you, Lord, that in your glorious goodness, even to a fallen world, you became a man and died on the cross for our sins. Thank you that our worldview holds together as we stand at the foot of a bloody cross and at the lip of an empty tomb. So leave us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.